New Models, Episode 43, After Dark, with Schumann Bissar and Dean Kissick. Is it midnight there? Yeah. This is our first this real first midnight, midnight podcast. Pod. Nice. Very exciting. It's a real like uh, middle schooler's dream. Like <laughs> podcasting at midnight. Nobody knows. Yeah. Nobody knows. Pretty cool. That's about right. We're, we're transgressive on the middle school scale. Yeah. Unlike um, some of the more hardcore pods. We stay up late. We, uh, well, ironically, the most hardcore podcast, like don't record on Sunday. Thing, <laughs> That's true. Well, you know, I just noticed that. Walter Pierce, host of the Wet Brain Pod, is on your 2010s poster, which I'd never realized before. Yeah, sniffing I'm the poppers. I'm so glad you brought that up. He was a model for a Bjorn and Melgard piece circa 2010, 11? Uh, probably a bit later. I mean, he would have been... But I think like he in was middle a baby. school then. No, maybe. I think he was really a baby then. But he was like 17, I think, I think in he that was picture. 17, yeah. He was definitely underaged. Yeah. yeah. In any case, we're here in Berlin with Schumann Basar and Dean Kissick. And we're so thrilled to have this like mega star studded IRL midnight pod. And we have Dan calling in from here in Detroit, right? Suburban Detroit, yes. But um, many listeners will know Schumann and will know Dean. Dean's been um, a guest of the pod before and also yeah. author of an NM Reads. I'm sure we'll link to it. But maybe we could just start off with some introductions. Uh, I know you all are multi-hyphenates. Well, I have a monthly column for Spike magazine called The Downward Spiral. I'm writing a book about what I think is a crisis in contemporary art, like art people not really knowing or being able to agree on what art's even supposed to do or mean in any way anymore. I like going on podcasts, but the first one I ever did was New Models in this room, so it's great to be back. Uh, I'm also helping organize an exhibition, a survey show of new painting that's going to open at Namad Contemporary in New York on June the 22nd. Oh, cool. Yeah. And in Berlin this week, it's not only Art Week, but you're also doing some performance yourself. Oh, yeah, I have a cabaret. I'm in yeah. Irena Hajduk's uh, Cabaret Economique, which is going to be tomorrow night, Saturday night at the Anita Berber Bar. But it's already sold out, so maybe you can get a scalp ticket. <laughs> it's sold out, yeah, but, you know, we can get, we can get people in. All right, good to know. Um, so thank you, Dean. And Schumann, could you introduce yourself? I will do my best. There are three questions I hate the most. The first is, how are you? The second is, where do you come from? And the third is, what do you do? Yeah. Yes. Um, because <laughs> there's no way to avoid the dreaded hyph- hyphenated mm. um, run-on answer, but I'll do my best. I'm an author. Um, I guess my most recent book 
is called The Extreme Self, Age of You, which is the second book that I've done with Douglas Coupland and Hans-Urich Oberst. And um, I am also commissioner of the Global Art Forum at Art Dubai, which is a kind of transdisciplinary summit that happens usually every year. Obviously, it didn't happen for three years, but we just did an, an edition. Um, I've been a member of the Thought Council at the Fondazione Prada. I work with a number of magazines. Indeed, Dean and I go way back. Um, our origin stories are at Tank Magazine. Yeah, that was my first job. Wow. You both heard of Tank. That was my first job. No Shimon. way. Yeah. Love I Tank. worked for Shimon, among others. Yes, yeah. Dean. No Dean, way. yes. Yeah. Um, you know, I interviewed Shimon and Douglas and Hans Ulrich in the Serpentine office about the Age of Earthquakes ah. when it came out. We had some coffee, some cakes, I think. That's like right. Hans Ulrich seemed like kind of distracted. And uh, Douglas Hoopland asked me this question, like, what are you reading? And I, I wasn't reading anything. Like, this was maybe a decade ago or something, probably less. 2015. 2015. I wasn't reading anything. Like, I had no answer. Like, I wasn't reading any books. And I felt very ashamed by this. And it kind of kicked me off on this spiral of just actually starting to read contemporary fiction and really, like, not even contemporary, like, recent educating myself, reading uh, all the greats, you know, Foster Wallace, yeah. all your favorites, Franson. Um, but then... Uh, uh, maybe three years ago, I bumped into Shimon and Douglas at the opening of the Sharjah Biennale. Mm -hmm. And I asked Douglas what he was reading, and he was like, oh, I don't read anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you clearly inspired him <laughs> towards a post-literate existence. There's no time. He's <laughs> a busy man. <laughs> But in any case, The Extreme Self is the second book in what is a burgeoning series. Burgeoning trilogy. And The Extreme Self came out this past summer around the same time as the NM Codex. And it's like the size of a McLuhan, the medium is the massage. And we're thinking, oh my gosh, they just beat us to the punch. But it's actually a really great companion to the Codex. And it follows from an exhibition that shares part of a title. We were the, passing around uh, War and Peace in the Global Village when yeah, we were we working were, on the Codex, that's true. which yeah. is the other paperback. They were always Penguin. in like drugstore racks, yeah. you know, like yeah. the wire racks and like your local indie drug mart that sold like greeting cards. Well, it yeah. felt like a portable, it felt like the right print medium for our time because mm -hmm. you can travel with it. You can literally stick it in your pocket. Um, in any case, The Extreme Cell, it's a super, super fun book. And I hope that like, as we talk today, we can even pull some of the lines from this. I want to hear about the first book though. The, the Age of Earthquakes is the first book ah. and the subtitle is called A Guide to the Extreme Present. And this is the one that Dean interviewed us for, for Vice. Yeah. Yeah, it was for Vice. But yes, as you say, they do spring ultimately from this famous paperback, The Medium is the Massage from 1967 also by a very luminous triumvirate. And I think it's often accredited only to Marsha McLuhan, but that's really a misauthorship mm. because up till that point, McLuhan had written a number of very influential, but ultimately academically dense and quite introverted books like Understanding Media and the, uh, the Gutenberg Galaxy, etc. And then this guy called Jerome Agel decided that he would sort of self-style himself on the Beatles manager, who used to be... Brian Epstein. Brian Epstein, exactly. Who, you know, was considered to be the fifth Beatle, no? And so Jerome Agel said, I want to be to books what Brian Epstein is to the Beatles. <laughs> and he set out on this mission to take the most interesting, radical, inventive 
thinkers of the time, but who had yet to be unleashed onto the mainstream. And the first thing he did was go to this graphic designer called Quentin Fiore, who at that point was most famous for designing the typography that went on Bell telephones. Mm. And then they together went to Marshall, Professor Marshall McLuhan, who looked like basically a fusty, tweed-wearing, moustache-clad, you know, great uncle, and said, Professor McLuhan, we love your ideas, but we think we can essentially repackage them in order to make them understandable to a 10-year-old girl. <sighs> and he said, away you go. Yeah. And so off they went for six months and essentially did a kind of heroic mega cut-up of some his greatest ideas from his previous books, but essentially turned it into a paperback full of proto-memes. No? And then they presented it to McLuhan. He loved it. And his greatest contribution was the title because he was famous for this slogan, the medium is the message, which is from Understanding Media in 1964. But there are these apocryphal stories that his son, Eric McLuhan, also kind of rehearses now, which is that the galleys came back and instead of saying the medium is the message, it's now said the medium is the massage. And McLuhan, who was a scholar of James Joyce, uh, and uh, a devotee of puns. And his favorite book was uh, Finnegan's Wake, mm-hmm. because it's ultimately a book of invented language, of kind of babble. And so he looked at this uh, misprint of message to massage, and he said, aha, that's it. Because, of course, it's the word message massaged. It's reflexive. Sure. And it's also mass age. Right. And so there are these kind of multiple refracted ways in which you can kind of read the word. Anyway, the the book came out, it was published by Bantam in American Penguin in the UK, went on to sell a million copies and ultimately got McLuhan as a cameo on Annie Hall in 1976, which is one of the great, great scenes. But ultimately also quite sadly is probably the point at which you know, his kind of career and his renown began its sort of terminal decline. And he died in 1980. And the interesting thing is that McLuhan never got to see the internet because he died in 1980. But he seemed to predict it. He seemed to prophesize it. And so Douglas asked myself and Hans Ulrich, actually a whole decade ago, having written a biography on, on Marshall McLuhan in 2010, he said, we should do an update of this book for the 21st century. Uh. What would McLuhan make of this world that we live in. And so really that's the premise. And and that's why Penguin published the book because it was almost 50 years after they published The Medium is the Massage. And so we decided that, as you say, Carly, the paperback was the right form to somehow make us reflect on the deeply unpaper nature of our times, mm-hmm. no? Yeah. And, and there's, even in, in 67, there's something that Fiore says, which is so visionary. He described uh, the medium as the massage as a dialogue between the computer and the book mm-hmm. in 1967. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I, I always think of our books as paperbacks that have swallowed our smartphones mm-hmm. and have apoplectic kind of allergic reactions. Yeah. And that's what, that's what we're reading when we look through them, yeah. 
I mean, I love that. I mean, of course, in the 60s, there was so much thinking about new cybernetics and it seemed like the, you know, the shadowy guys at the CIA who were working on DARPAnet or whatever were also hanging out with like the Timothy Leary types. And there was like a real crazy cross-pollination of tech, new connectivity and also culture. Um, They were all dropping LSD. They're all dropping LSD together. And it's kind of similar maybe to our current moment where you do have some kind kind of bifurcation of an art world where there's, I mean, maybe we can get into this a bit, but you do, I mean, well, to like gloves off it, you have, I mean, I was not just at the BNLA, maybe you yeah, both let's go, were. let's go, let's <laughs> go. Um, gloves off. Great that it's, you know, 90% female, that's fantastic. Um, but my impression is that a lot of it was very like craft-based or somewhat static or somewhat, um, I mean, some of it's just like legitimately like, quite old, which is fine. I mean, that's great also that older stuff comes to the fore. But at the same time, you have this like really rich thing that's happening with tech, with Web3, with and with a lot of women. I mean, in the Web3 space, there are so many women who are also thinking outside of simply speculation. And yet that's not being framed necessarily by the traditional or legacy art institutions. But I do feel like we're in this moment of cross-pollination. And I think looking at the extreme self you do see this. I mean, it's filled with memes. It's yeah. filled with found images, stuff that like anybody who is as online as anyone who's subscribing to at least new models. I mean, this does feel like our everyday medium. This is the visual language that we actually live in. And it it feels like increasingly separated from the kind of visual language that you tend to see in galleries and especially museums. Not all. And there's a lot of really cool artists that are also working there. But the like traditional system and maybe Dean and this is actually a question for you if you're writing this book. When you see Schumann's book and you see, well, we've all just come from Art Week. Um, yeah. We've all just been walking around to the galleries. What goes through your mind? Um, I think a lot of big exhibitions at the moment, biennials and a lot of the art world in general, rejects or kind of denies the existence of internet culture, yeah. like visual language or the world we live in like denies it purposefully and by design, like d- does not want to live in that world. The recent New Museum Triennial and the Greater New York show at PS1 were like that, but also like the last documenta, which I thought was an excellent show. Like that's a exhibition where it's just completely like pretending we live in a world where there are no computers, there are <laughs> no phones. Like, and, and that's like, that kind of thing doesn't happen accidentally. Mm. So we just had the opening of the Whitney Biennial. Whitney actually did kind of dive into the present in a way. Like it does have digital art. It does have some very, very, good, very good film made in like GTA with other kind of ways of making this film. Uh, Venice, now that you say it, yeah, I guess there's not really any digital or kind of internet tech art in Venice. That does make sense in a way, though, because Ralph Rugoff's last Venice Biennale was kind of a post-internet Biennale, or mm. like it's kind of John Raffman was mm. seems to be the star of that Biennale. Or that's what people say to me. But I think in Venice, it's not noticeable, or it wasn't noticeable to me 
that it actually doesn't have like this technological work because it has this huge like kind of post-humanist mm. turn. It's quite a kind of land, Nick Landian exhibition right. in a way, and that's so it's kind of it's kind of like land mixed with like indigenous craft practices. Mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Nick land and the kind of the, 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 the motherland, you know. Right. Just a show about land. Or show about, just yeah. a show about land. <laughs> I mean, I had a different take. I only feel partly qualified because. I didn't spend an inordinate amount of time, as one should, I think, perhaps. And I only, I sort of did the dash down the Corderi and the Arsenale, and I I saw a few things there. But yeah, I suppose my sense, my initial sense, was that this could be a show from 1973 Mm -hmm. or 1964, in the sense that it did feel like the computer had not been invented Mm. yet. Um, the mobile phone yeah. had not been invented yeah. yet. The internet hadn't been invented yet. And certainly social media hadn't been invented yet, right? And and this was kind of interesting given that Cecilia Alemania says in many of her interviews that she had to do like 170 studio visits over Zoom. <laughs> you know? Because, I mean, she couldn't visit anybody right. over the last yeah, right. two or three years, right? Like, no one could travel. Yeah. Globalization so she had finished. everything. Essentially, this is a biennial that's been put together through the internet, through Zoom, through the computer, none of these things are present, right? Hmm. That doesn't happen by accident. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right? That doesn't happen by accident. That's a statement. It's a reactionary. That, and I do find it reactionary. Yeah. Now, of course, it's absolutely amazing that. Well, it's like alternative history almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's, I mean, I can't help or but like see opera. it as a kind of defensive act of citadel making. You know? mm-hmm. Because two nights before I'd gone to the Kraftwerk power station here in Berlin where bright moments had taken over the Dow cathedral like space for three weeks bright bright moments Dow and for those of you who don't know you know bright moments essentially eventize NFT minting processes no and they turn them into these spectacular social events uh, often with very stunning settings with a sense of this is part club part salon part backroom deal making and, you know, it's a real statement, no? And to sort of have gone from that, which for all its possible problematics or kind of taste questions, to me it did feel like I got a sense of where the present and the future are going. Mm-hmm. But at Venice, I did not get any sense other than one way that the art world is dealing with the uncertainties of the, pres- of the extreme present and the future is in a reactionary manner and is ultimately yeah. to continue to glorify the act of painting. Right. You no, know, which is ultimately also I mean, painting is the OG NFT of the art world. Right. You know? So I can't help but see, and just to reiterate what I think what Dean was saying, that, you know, there are barbarians at the gates at the moment, no? And whether you call them Web3, NFTs, people, any of these things, no, there are barbarians at the gates. And one I of the ways in which apes the, at the gates. Apes at the gates. <laughs> Apes at the Gates. It's a good name for an PFP project, by the way. Um, but, you know, the art world's doubling down, I feel. Mm. And to me, it did yeah, feel yeah, like a are. kind of doubling down. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you agree with that, um, Dean. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the institutional art world and part of the gallery world as well has turned away from the present by purpose, by design, like will not show digital work or like work that really reflects uh, how it feels to be alive now and just keeps going further and further into the past and retreating into painting. Mm -hmm. But as I mentioned at the beginning, you know, I'm working on this 
exhibition where we're going to have a big survey show of digital painting or painting made with technology mm. or um, painting composed on computers. So this big problem we have in the art world is going to be solved in like, I guess, June 22nd, just under two months. <laughs> so Avery by, by, by me is in and it. my friend Eleanor. <laughs> Actually, Avery will not be in it and would not reply to my email, but we would we would love... I mean, Avery should be in it. Right. And actually, like, Avery's show at uh, Hauser & Wirth last fall was incredible show. Yes. I've been reading about how she makes those paintings with those... I think that might have been the with, last show the I saw in the gallery. Yeah, did you like it? Yeah, uh, I, I liked elements of it. It wasn't as my favorite of her of her work. I think I think the Balenciaga reference jumped the shark a little bit for me, but mm-hmm. maybe I didn't get it. It was, it was it's funny seeing these like pictures of this kind of Wojak paintings, like big Wojak yeah, also yeah, it was like a, a, a million dollars above like a Philip Guston Klansman show. It was very like. Good, that, good pair of The juxtaposition was what made it, for sure. Yeah. But seeing Wojak's in a painting is somehow like the inverse of seeing a painting become an NFT, the taking from one world and putting it onto this other world that's happening. I, I have a question. Yeah. Like, what year or at what stage did opera stop changing and became kind of codified? Because I feel like we're just sort of at a stage now where... Yeah, it would be annoying to go into an opera and see it all be like people wearing yoga pants and taking selfies. That would be too much of a statement. You go there to experience a certain type of thing, you know, and it's codified and that's just it, you know, and the rest is kind of moved on. And I kind of feel like it's not really retreating in, into the past or it was just like willfully remaining and... You know, I get it. It's just sort of like... But, it's, but Dan, it's but be- by, st- by standing still long enough you effectively end up retreating into the past, don't you? Oh, I mean, oh, I definitely think it is retreating into the past. It's just, I'm saying it's becoming institutionalized or ossified in the same way that other cultural institutions have at other points in their development where they ceased being modern institutions. At one point, going to the opera was the most modern form of Mm -hmm. entertainment or art that you could go see. At some point that changed. Of course, that had to do with technological shifts, but was it exactly a technological shift or, you know, when did it stop developing? That is my question. It's it's sort of rhetorical, but I am curious if it was purely because of competition or just that the genre sort of stopped developing at some point. Yeah, I don't, I don't know when opera stopped developing. But 19th with, century. With contemporary art, I think it's probably like early 2010s, right? Mm-hmm. There's some point where it just like... I mean, stopped. I would say 2008. Yeah, I would think 2008 as well. But then we're saying like all these... Uh, these these net artists, these post-internet artists and stuff were not actually uh, it was already over hey, like by the time what are you talking about? by the time H three D were blowing up. Already 2009. Already exactly. That was the year. But Dan, I mean, you've said something interesting before where Postnet was already trying to find forms outside of the canonical art framework. And it was in art because that was an easy place to play with market dynamics. Is that, I mean, that's sort of my understanding of it. Well, I think that's an element, yeah, for sure. And maybe an element. And now a lot of people who are post-nut artists have gotten involved in Web3 using NFT images as portals to other kinds of things that are happening. Yeah, no, I think it's the equivalent of pictures generation artists going into Hollywood is doing a million dollar seed round for his startup. That's the exact same <laughs> trajectory mirrored a couple decades later. It's his Johnny mnemonic. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's really, it's literally the same pitch that was biennial fodder a few years I mean, ago. I it's kind of an amazing pipeline, like biennial to serious VC. Yeah. Like, the process yeah. is very similar, but I do think that 
it shows you, I mean, the dream of artists in the 80s and early 90s was like, yeah, to escape into Hollywood, which was the real, you know, cultural force. Yeah. And it's obviously the, the equivalent thing for post-internet artists that stop wanting to LARP. I mean, also, I guess Greg Fong works at Airbnb. There's a lot of this trajectory of post-internet art into direct startup culture. I would say that Occupy was really the <laughs> cutting off moment. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> Blog has next. In 2008. Yeah. No, why art stopped in 2008? Yeah. I mean, I think it is just like the speed of media, the way that images were circulating, um, and also globalization. You know, in the 90s, it was like speaking to a niche. You were speaking to a scene. And then there was a lot of excitement around having a global art world. That, w- that was super exciting. But at a certain point, it reached a titration point where you had to either be Become mass and just become like a mat, like a Sarah Morris or somebody. Yeah. You couldn't really be niche. I don't know. I mean, what year a- was the time person of the year? Like a mirror you. of a, like a photo of a computer. Two thousand six. Yeah. yeah. So that was. I think maybe that's the year where. <laughs> art died. The tipping into the extreme self precluded a, like a larger art world. But I think what this points towards is the notion that you know the center of the culture is always transitory. Mm. You know? And by transitory, maybe a few years, it may be a few centuries, no? But it, I mean, one of the things, we have a chapter in the book called Wizards and Charismatics. And the premise is that there are always magical individuals in culture. And the mass looks to certain magic individuals for answers, for direction, for solace, for compassion even. Over the last few decades, or maybe even throughout most of the 20th century, artists were one of the preeminent magic individuals. Mm-hmm. No? I mean, I've been watching the the Warhol documentary on Netflix, oh, yeah. which I, for me, the best part of it is the narrated voice, which is sort of a, a computer generated, you know, through machine learning Warhol drawl, which is actually really, really beautiful and quite affecting. But I think what, what that is such a reminder to us of was just how pivotal artists, you know, and then the Basquiat comes along, they squad up, and there's a sense in which, you know, at that point, artists were preeminent magic individuals. So were novelists at some time. Librettists, I'm glad you mentioned opera because I think librettists and, <laughs> you know, the people that wrote opera, if you think about Mozart, no, it's like the apogee poets mm-hmm. for thousands of years were the magic individuals. I think we're now in a time where our argument essentially is the wizards and charismatics of today are our technologians, mm. no? I mean, what artists, frankly, can kind of compete with Elon at the moment. No, no right. Like, no, not in, right. in terms of an extreme self, in terms yeah. of, you know, like just the sheer confounding, brain numbing unpredictability of what he means versus what he does versus what he thinks versus who he is and who he was and who he will be. You no, know? like totally. these are all things that we would have ascribed to Salvador Dali 50 mm-hmm. years ago. You or know? Damien Hirst or Damien 20 Hirst, years ago. 20 or 30 yeah, years exactly, ago. Exactly, no? right. I don't think there are any artists today, mm-hmm. right? Like, right. And I just simply think that art isn't where our magic individuals are anymore. Mm, I would agree with that. Yes, definitely. I mean, can you think of a charismatic yeah, artists that would fill that role right now who's like of this generation. I can't. Not even well, a musician. Kanye I mean, other West. than Kanye. Kanye, yeah. sure. Yeah. But Con- Kanye exceeds art. I don't think he's bound by that category. Yeah, no, I don't know if there's... Uh, I mean, Pierre Huy is brilliant, but it's not really the ma- ma- magic yeah. individual. Oh, yeah. 
this we, 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 need, we need to stop Elon. He's, try, he's trying to build free speech on Twitter. He needs, he needs to be fucking stopped, man. <laughs> this fucking maniac. Like, this there fucking you guy. You know, new model. <laughs> you need to kill him. You need to dead him. <laughs> Not us, but if you're listening. But also there was like a mythification, get that to this point, there was mm-hmm. like a mythification of that kind of charismatic individual, like with the way that social media told you to professionalize as a charismatic individual. Mm-hmm. I mean, the like the myth of the like genius artist, the solo artist is like this modernist myth that's, you know, been with us for 200 years or so. And it did seem to implode sometime in the past 20 years with this demand that everybody become that. That was like the, the if you want to be successful after you get out of school, that's what you do. You become the charismatic individual. And influencer is such a misnomer because like influencers are super mids, right? Mm-hmm. Influencers yep. are not the charismatic individuals. They're just the automatons. I mean, the TikTok stars all look alike. There's a way that, what are you going to say, Julian? Well, it's just that, I mean, midification though is a product of the scale of the market right now. Uh-huh. I mean, Netflix shows are mid hmm. because now their market is not, the cable subscribers of the American coast, they literally need to appeal to hundreds of millions of people across the world to be successful. So the right. market dynamics are just scaled to the broadest possible market. And that almost applies to everything. And then there's these sorts of magic tropes that these devices that just are proven to work really well and they get redeployed, redeployed, iterated a little bit upon and redeployed again. I mean, think about trap, like, the general structure of hip hop beats hasn't changed mm. for tw- 20 years because they just hit the magic formula. Uh-huh. I mean, I think ultimately the biggest problem is, I, I think it's a problem, but it's like the critic's role is the one that I feel like is the most threatened right, right now. Mm, right. I always come back to this. It's a cliched quote, but it's the Brian Eno quote of saying when the Velvet Underground first record came out, it only sold 30,000 copies. That was nothing back then, right. but all 30,000 people who bought it went and started a band. And it's like right, record labels made so much money on big acts that they could take the risk and seed something new. And I feel like now it's too expensive to take these risks because of the scale that you have to be hitting. Mm-hmm. You, know, I, you know, I would come back to that saying... As a critic. You, you have, <laughs> I mean, we're lucky to be critics now, but like you have galleries, they make all their money off like one or two artists right. in their roster. They don't make any money off all the and other artists. And how many artists. collectors too. And... Uh, but all the art sucks, you know? It's not It's not just like the- Well, yeah. I mean, that is the other thing. Like, the art world is exclusive as it may be. It peels really mids. It doesn't excite. I don't know. It doesn't push up against anything. But it's not just these sorts of, like, limbic hacking devices, though, that's that true. a lot of right, mass media true. is really leaning on that's right true. now. That's uh, true. Yeah, that's bad. <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> It's funny, people people keep on talking about like um, <laughs> Wally, like all these serious intellectuals, like, they're like, you know what film really got like, got the present right? It's Wally, Wally. <laughs> anyway, I like the film, there's a Shang Li film, the Venice Biennale, it's very good. Uh-huh. Shang Li. And what is no, it? No, and I love Sofia Almeria's film yeah. as well, which unfortunately isn't in the main Arsenale, but... The Wu Sang film. Uh, no, Sophia Almeria. Ah, what's the film? Where is it? Well, that's the problem. It's in the Pavilion of Applied Art, which is co-sponsored by the V&A. But uh-huh. she's done this lacerating attempt to get the V&A to address its colonial 
violent history. And it's filmed in the V&A and they co-supported it. And it's the one thing that I saw. Again, I didn't see everything. So, you know, apologies to everybody whose work I didn't see. But it's the one thing that I saw that said something to me about the present and how the future and the past kind of deliriously horseshoe with each other. Mm-hmm. No? So there are exceptions. I think it's. I think there are always sure. exceptions. Yes, there are yes, always yes, exceptions. Yes, yes, yes. But I guess we're talking about the kind of superstructure here, no? That's right. And the kind of overriding ideology of that superstructure, no? And yeah. what it believes is at stake, what it's there to protect, and what it's there to also ultimately keep out, mm-hmm. no? I mean, if gatekeeping was, you know, was a fine art, obviously the art world nobody's better at it, mm-hmm. you know? And, mm-hmm. But I do believe it is doubling down now. To speak to Dan's point, whether that's something to kind of worry about or not is maybe we're all more fools for caring because if Dan is right, that this was an art form whose period of experimentation was ultimately finite and now it has reached its natural terminal plateau and that magical energy of individualism and magical experimentation and kind of wild antic thinking has gone elsewhere. I mean, clearly has. Mm -hmm. That's also how things have always worked. Mm -hmm. And so, I don't know, should we be mourning or should we simply be more sanguine about it? No, that this is simply how things work. I mean, to me, I'm somewhere in between because of course, being part of the industry for like 20 years or something, I mean, maybe this is a nice point to sort of pivot to the word of the year last year, depending which source you read, but... Oxford, NF- Oxford English Dictionary. Oxford English that's, that's what we trust. Yeah. Oxford English Dictionary. I t- did, NFTs? did Oxford go for NFTs? Not Webster, I don't know. <laughs> it was either Webster or Colin, uh, but somebody made NFT word of the year in 2021, huh. which is kind of interesting. It's not well. even a word. They <laughs> <laughs> never go for word. They're always like, uh, oh, c- crying with laughter emoji or this uh, NFT. That's not a word. What the fuck? <laughs> Wait, acronym of the year. Acronyms are words. But abbreviations yeah. aren't words. <laughs> yeah. words. But Dean, did that you feel that doesn't sound like something Oxford English Dick? That sounds like a kind of Collins thing or a Webster thing. Word of the year, <laughs> <laughs> the riffraff of, dic- of the dictionary yeah. world. Something from something from the colonies. Yeah. <laughs> they need they need, to, they need to open up that dictionary and look up the the word word. Word. <laughs> the difference is between word and acronym. Yeah. But D- Dean, I'm curious. Did you feel the 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 the, the haunting presence of NFTs at the biennial either in its presence or in its absence no well in its absence yeah they should have put some nfts in there (laughs) but you know there's only like there's only kind of uh two or three good nft artists you know cecilia she's doing the female but she can't put like miladies in there (laughs) (laughs) i wish she had that imagine it's too fraught to put uh miladies in the venice biennale you're taking too much of a risk you know you can't be like an american pavilion you you got to put like Simone Lee, you can't put like Romelia Collective. (laughs) I'm sure they do a good pavilion. Um, The haunting absence. I mean, do you think that would ever change? I mean, if we go back in two years' time, four years' time, will it be 90% NFTs? No, 10% no, paintings? No, no, no but, but I like... Um, actually, I, li- I listened to a good episode of Contain recently with mm-hmm. um, my friend who does Toji uh, NFTs. And there's some NFT series I like, but I'm really, I'm, I'm judging them from the art critic perspective, like I'm coming in with this kind of 2010s mentality. But he was talking about how the idea of it kind of is just to be ugly and bad taste. Like that's kind of the point. 
And I doubt the people making Bored Apes are the kind of most tasteful people in the world. But, you know, like every new series is just like more preposterously, absurdly disgusting. And that doesn't happen by accident. And it actually has a kind of cultural or aesthetic trend or like not even like way of being like it's it's Mm -hmm. kind of anathema to how I think about culture. But I'm not even sure if NFTs really need to be included in the capital A art world or something. They're vehicles for memetics. Like it's a memetic medium. Memes have always been like crazy valuable, obviously. And somebody finally found a way to attach monetary value in a market. And I think expecting NFTs to share even the same criteria with which you would judge other artwork of other mediums doesn't quite make sense but because I it's, would, it's I, memetic. I sort of disagree it, because I think, I think that also though that there's lots of different forms that NFTs have taken. There's like, okay, super classical, it's an image and we either like the image or we don't. But increasingly, as we've seen this past year, they become these portals to other projects. I do think that it's for, there's obviously a lot of diversity within NFTs, but it has narrowed down into a 10,000 PFP profile picture project with certain dynamics around collecting and rarity traits. And that has really become codified into something that I think is, yeah, absolutely more like a multiplayer game than art collecting, even though there's a lot of the same dynamics. So, I mean, I think that even though that's shorthand, I wouldn't have defined NFTs that way even a year ago, but it's become that for sure at this point. So... But I think we can say that. And yeah, there is no reason that those images should show up in the biennial. It would be like stills from Dark Souls showing up in the biennial out of context. It's like... Or something from DeviantArt or ArtStation.com showing up in the biennial. Quite frankly, I just wish that the whole biennial format just seems like the wrong container for this. Why is is there a problem with there not being enough, I don't know, good artists or people doing interesting things? Why is that happening right now? It's a question of gatekeeping, I think. Are they unable to be found also because they can't just break the attention threshold? Like, Does there need to be more like like what uh, music A&R would be, but for... Art institutions, like that's. My, I think that I'm it's asking genuinely because I don't know. Over I, putting certain things in a space. I mean, imagine what an amazing American pavilion it would have been had it really embraced like all the weird NFT projects that have happened. For instance, like Miladies, <laughs> it would have been crazy. I but mean, it would have been a one-off. It'll happen in a couple biennials from now. It, yeah. it seems like it's worth uh, like pivoting back to what we said at the beginning about like land, not in the sense of like Nick Land, but clearly. We're ignoring the other aspect of like why biennials existed, which was like global capital, real estate market, whatever uh, instruments. And so, yeah, if they've outlived their purpose there, that's because we're like at the end of a 13 year bull run. Um, I think we could definitely identify the same cultural cycle as kind of echoing the business cycle that we've been in. We're clearly already in a recession. Technically, there's going to be a contraction in probably the real estate market in the years to come. There'll be less biennials, there'll be less art that was actually, you know, never about the aesthetics or any of those things, but they were, you know, similarly avatars of levels of leverage that existed in the economy. So maybe this is all just sort of mirroring that. But if I may, one of the, when we were sort of talking beforehand, Carly, I mean, you use this phrase, which I've been using as well, which is the idea of an NFT as a portal. Mm-hmm. You know? And I think, well, I hope we're at a stage now where that kind of equivalence of NFT with a 10,000 drop PFP project, it's just so well known that we can just put it aside mm-hmm. and we can begin to think about 
experimental alternatives? Because it seems to me, I mean, one of the things we're sort of circling around ultimately is whether legacy institutions are truly alive or kind of zombie, zombie alive, no? And if they're zombie alive, which is a form of life ultimately, right? And that's fine. And in a way you could argue opera is a kind of zombie art. It's been both alive and dead for hundreds of years. And that's fine. It will always have an audience in the same way that... The 10K PFP will always have an audience. Five or six million people will always go to MoMA or Tate and that's fine. Mm -hmm. But if you're invested, as I believe I am and as I believe actually all of us around this table are, in the questions of what and where do things emerge? Where does what we don't yet know to use Rumsfeld's term, the unknown unknowns, (laughs) where does the unknown unknown emerge? What kind of institutional scaffolding or infrastructure do we need to foster that? And just to end my long, tedious list of CV points, my latest thing is co-founding a new outfit. My role is called Chief Narrative Officer (laughs) with two co-founders, Peter Hosgrove and Zoe Noland, and a small team of other colleagues. We are introducing the idea of what we call expanded NFTs as ultimately a new medium for artists to kind of enter into the space. And ultimately we commission projects, but the projects have at least two components. One is an NFT, but the NFT has an option on it and the option allows you to redeem the NFT. And when you redeem it, you redeem it for a material artifact. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting with the artists that we've been speaking so far, as I say, all of whom have been approached by all of these numerous NFT platforms to whom they've all said no, precisely because they don't want to make a JPEG. Mm -hmm. No, they just don't see the point. And what we're trying to do, hopefully, is sort of nudge forward the potential regarding the space. Yeah. And as I say, my, I had this experience of whiplash going from Kraftwerk bright moments, you know, this kind of secular rapture around this new culture to then to Venice. It still feels like there's this yawning chasm between the two. And in a sense, those two you know, demographics partly define themselves in radical opposition to the other. And that will lead to more and more doubling down. The question is, are there enough, you know, minorities on both sides of the banks, as it were, who are interested in some sort of productive convergence, ultimately? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think there is, or I'm hoping there is, we're hoping there is. I think you do as Mm -hmm. well, no? And when I think about what you and, you know, Matt and Holly and Josh are thinking about in terms of channel, no? When I first heard the proposition, that's what it seemed to me was at stake. What new forms of, I hate the word, but I'm going to use it, communities mm-hmm. can now be formed in a way that's never been formed before, no? And those seem to me to be actually reasonably decent questions. And, you know, when I think about NFTs, of course I think about the sort of taste deficit from our perspective, right? But one of the things I've been thinking about is aura in a very old-fashioned sense, mm-hmm. no? And to me, most NFTs visually or aesthetically lack an auratic experience. But arguably the aura of certainly a PFP project is either in its kind of financial profit potential, right? Its flippability, or the fact that you can own it. But the aura in the traditional sense, I mean, there's a big Francis Bacon show, the Royal Academy at the moment. I haven't been, but I know friends who've gone and then testify to 
almost breaking down in tears, no, in front of these paintings. <laughs> and I know that feeling as a teenager, no, going down to London for the first time, sitting in front of the, the famous triptych and having an overwhelming emotional experience. And I guess what we're sort of wondering at Zine, at this new thing that we're doing is, can we potentially import some of that old-fashioned, <laughs> affective, sentimental, sensorial encounter whose engine is this technology and this mm -hmm. culture of technology. And I'm excited about that as an experiment. I'm excited about that as something that, as I say, when every artist that we've spoken to so far, their response to us is, okay, we've not been approached this way by anyone else so far. Mm -hmm. The only way that we do get approached is, hey, can you make an NFT by next week <laughs> so that we can drop it? Uh -huh. And of, frankly, everyone we've spoken to is not interested in that. Right. No? And which is, again, not to dismiss the PFP project or all of that energy, because I agree, it's a category error, no? Try and judge that on the basis of our refined 20th century aesthetics and post-structuralist education or whatever. It's bullshit, no? Like, it's a ridiculous thing to do. It is what it is. It does what it does. But the category shouldn't surely define what the technology and the culture of the technology is capable of mm -hmm. moving on from here on forwards. And I suppose that's the thing that I've been thinking about no, or wanting to address. And I feel that well, from what I understand, that's also maybe what Channel will be addressing. No? Yeah, I mean, not to use the C word again, a community, mm. but there's a kind of community that can be activated through the unique technology of Web3 without having, you know, of course, also with having semi-privacy if people want that. I think that's what I was getting hung up on, actually, because they are aesthetic and because there are artworks attached to them that people thought they had to be validated in some way or another by the art world. Mm. And I really see it, though, as fine being what it is. Mm -hmm. um, although I do find a lot of the market mechanics ended up very similar. I mean, a lot of the art market is purely just mimetic anyways and flipping JPEGs of paintings you have in a Freeport somewhere, right. regardless. Right. And guys on WhatsApp group talking right. about who's Money hot or not. Other, and yeah. yeah, so, I mean, there's like a market convergence there. FYI, the Castello de Rivoli has now just become the first major museum to show people. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's showing the human one that right. was sold for like $21 million yeah. equivalent ETH, right? Um, collected yeah. by Ryan Zura. But I went to his opening. You were there, right? Yeah. New York. <laughs> New York, I went to his opening. But I feel like even Beeple is anomalous as far as NFT artists. The epitome of an NFT artist is a pseudonymous team. Like, it's not even a singular artist. Two-thirds of NFT collectors are millennials. That's the other thing. This is huh. not a new young movement of like right. young, fresh energy coming yeah. up. It's, like, it's mostly millennials, yeah. you know, and there's also only... Geriatric millennials? Well, it, it, it's millennials and then, you know, there's 350,000 wallets holding NFTs total. Oh, wow, like, right. I mean, I think, I think you're kind of missing how easy it is to like astroturf a successful NFT thing with a bunch of capital mm -hmm. and you and like the moon birds for instance oh my god if you look at the price chart of that it like went up to top five in a week as opposed to with board apes it took a long time and it was much more of an organic thing but like that playbook exists now and is just being replicated so i think that's already like we're seeing a kind of acceleration and like corporatization of that same dynamic it's not even really about like truly crafting any kind of like valuable memetics, it's something less interesting than that even. Did you, did you it's hear? Just, it's just money. Did you hear about how Coinbase 
is now moving into movie production. Really? Yeah. So they're producing <laughs> yeah. uh, a trilogy of feature films based on Bored well, Apes. Really? Cool. That's not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but They hired someone from Hollywood and he's now in charge yeah. of their, basically this... their entertainment department. <laughs> so, you know, Coinbase acting as a movie studio right. for Yuga Labs and Bored Apes. No? I'm, I'm interested it's a to bad see idea. like... No, I, th- I think it's a I no, think like it's, straight up. It's like that's not going to scale no, like board apes to, yeah, like, to capture the nation's imagination. <laughs> no, I, mean, I think it's a good idea. And, and I, I'm Do you actually, think it's a good idea? I, I'm interested to see how board apes put across their explicitly pro Nazi agenda in their trilogy of films coming out. I can't wait to Will see, all see all the dog the same, whistles uh, in this, uh, this new colonial and, helmets. And I think. You know, like um, movies are in trouble, and, and like as Mark Fisher said, like Star Wars was already naive, but maybe like a movie reset could just be like mm. a big kind of explicitly Nazi uh, board games <laughs> trilogy. Like, um, just like Let's go back to like seventies Italian exploitation years. Oh, and board apes are seen by Lenny Riefenstahl. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> who, who are we going to cast as the apes? Who would you cast as the apes? Oh. Like, I hope you get a cameo in this. <laughs> <laughs> Timothy Chalamet, he's going to be yes. an ape. He's got to be an ape. Who's that guy who keeps getting arrested oh, in Hawaii? Guy. Oh, Ezra Miller. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Ezra Miller. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he's in your painting show, isn't he? No, that's not disgraced uh, polycule <laughs> actor Ezra Miller. Ezra is cool, and it's it's fine if they keep like assaulting people in Hawaii. It's fine. <laughs> we have a lot of like this is they're, they're like Asian American representation in Hawaii. We have Tao Lin, we have Ezra Miller, and it's all good. It's all good. Tao Lin lives in Hawaii now. Yeah. Ah. He left society. Right. I haven't been reading enough. Clearly. He left society. Uh, there's a few people I know who left society to Hawaii. Exit to Hawaii is a thing right now. To return to your earlier points, I agree that like of course there's no reason like NFTs need to be involved in art. But then like historically interesting art movements would be something that's just like kind of deeply anti art and everyone like involved in it doesn't understand it, doesn't know where it comes from. But your question of like why art is not good now, I don't think it's even trying to be good. Like I don't think institutions, biennial curators, people that run institutions, their first thought in the show is not what's the best art I can show. It's just not. Like that's not what What they're trying to do. What do you think? What's their priority then? What's the metric? It's about making the world better. Mm. It's, it's about being like very symbolic in a literal way. It, it's about the diversity of your artist base. Yeah. And it's about like just, you know, something kind of calm and caring and like great art is kind of problematic. That shit might surprise you, might make you uncomfortable. Like, Who's the youngest artist in the Venice Biennale, if anyone knows? I don't know. Well, all I can say is I would be so immediately distrustful of any Zoomers I meet with ambitions to become an art star. I would just like, write up a whole generation. I think he has faith in an entire generation. <laughs> but I just I did recently read the term geriatric Zoomer. Really? Ooh, yeah. There we go. Huh. So we're now already up to geriatric Gen Z. 
<laughs> but when, but like, what is the year marker for Gen Z properly? Is it people under 28 right now? Under 25? Well, I mean, there's some debate, but technically it, it's meant to be 1996. Uh huh. Okay. Um, 1996 onwards. Yeah. Yeah. So then, so 27 or something. What is that? Yeah. Zoomers Seven. are old. Yeah. Zoomers, Zoomers are, are old. Zoomers are old. Oh. Yeah. I mean, millennials are hitting 40. They've yeah, millennials 40. turned 40 this year. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah. that's the classic. I'm technically Gen X, which I love saying on every podcast. Yes. So I'm beyond the horizon line of even being a geriatric millennial. Well, the whole idea of geriatric millennial is like a secession from being a millennial to try to join Gen X, right? Uh, like it's a kind it's just uh-huh, like uh, right. I mean I have such contempt for millennials and I feel so <laughs> ashamed of being part of this generation. So we're just trying to secede. Yeah, <laughs> could be. People like Gen X, although Zoomers don't like Gen X, actually. Millennials like Gen X, But yeah. I mean, the big crisis that I have right now is that there are so many people in that generation who I deeply respect and who I think are so brilliant and who, who are addressing a lot of the same things that we think about every single day. The extreme self, for instance, or the recuperation of subculture. So, you or know, hell, Bernadette Corporation was like, defined what was cool for the next 20 years. Right, and like, you open up Millennials their, were just like basically... Redoing that script in New York, I think, over and over and over. Right. But of course, Gen Xers were super suspicious of social media and super embarrassed by having their voice recorded and being on video. And so they would say yes to being on like a really formal panel. But they would not do a podcast. They will not do a YouTube. They will not take a selfie, which I also respect. But there is this new lost generation of Gen X who are just not visible to Gen Z. And they look at like the cultural elite, quote, quote, and they say it's so cringe and it's so annoying and we hate Gen X. It's because the only Gen Xers they're seeing are the ones who didn't have these kind of antibodies built in where they resisted the microphone, they resisted the selfie. So there's just like a blank spot. They don't know about Bernadette, Josephine Pride, Jacoon. I mean, maybe someone younger who's listening is like, yes, I already do know it. But in general, the people who are present are the super lib curators who do want to make the world a better place and don't have the first idea how to actually do it. Yeah. And the Gen Xers who have really cool ideas about it are like super under the radar. They're like, it's the cosmic dark ages. It's the equivalent, you know, there's the period right after the Big Bang where there wasn't any energy yet. And so we, there's no record. There's also a part of the Grand Canyon that's already eroded away. And so there's no geological record. That's Gen X. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's perfect, Dan. But so the question is, is how to bridge that too. I feel like it's the intergenerational contract. I want to somehow communicate without forcing them on podcasts and putting them in front of cameras. But also you can't just have them write more essays in dusty journals. You can't just have them on museum panels because no one's going to listen to that. Like, how do you bridge those two cultures? I mean, maybe it just doesn't need to happen. And why do I feel pressure to try to make that connection? But I don't know how to do it. And like, I love these thinkers. And I wish I could find a comfortable way for the two media brains to meet. I mean, it's not really my job, but kind of it is as being sympathetic it is, to it both generations. It's kind of your job, actually, Carly. <laughs> when I make some a, that are and some that aren't, right? Yeah, the best they, ones aren't. Like, really, honestly, the very best ones, like, aren't. I don't know. They're I just, think Juman's pretty good. Uh, wait, wait, technically you're Gen X too, actually. I'm, I'm prime Gen X. Yeah, I'm, I'm 1974. Oh, right. I'm the oldest person at this table. That's true. That's true. And um, Seth Price also does stuff, right? He He's does. He's so, but he does it almost as a ruse. Well, I mean, I shouldn't speak for him. No, he knows Zoomers, why he does Zoomers it. Zoomers like Seth Price. 
I mean, he's great. He's been thinking about these issues for a long time publicly. He wrote an unpublished uh, YA novel about the topic you were oh, talking yeah. about earlier, about DARPA and like DARPA. Oh. And so, yeah. Unpublished he, being key here. That's what keeps him done. He's, he's about to publish a um, extract of it, though, oh, in yeah. uh, the heavy traffic, the popular Zuma yeah. literary yeah. mag in downtown. So That seems like the right format then. But do you think we'll continue to keep thinking in terms of generations? Because we obviously reached the end of the alphabet. That's yeah. We're in a sort of terminological apparia. Yeah. No? And, well, they um, went to alpha. Yeah, we well, it's alpha. fine. We started over again. It's like 400 years left then, right? Is it? It's <laughs> <laughs> kind of scary though, like gen alpha just primed to fully embrace the manosphere. (laughs) 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 Hail Jordan Peterson. (laughs) Every dude who's born in Gen Alpha is going to be a a menace. I mean, it's a good question. Every time we bring up generations, and I know there's going to be blowback on uh, oh, like yeah. the Discord. Everybody hates oh, yeah. it, and they tell us they, they send us it. a thousand links about how we're wrong and how they're false and how they're not just historically bound but geographically bound, and how there's no Gen X in Russia or in Soviet Union. Yeah. You know, all these very good points, which are yeah, all because true. They're snowflake millennials. They're, uh, <laughs> they're <laughs> snowflake millennials. Of course, they'd say that. Boring <laughs> kerosene in the Discord. Ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, it, but I do think that every age cohort does grow up with a certain number of things which they take for granted until, of course, the world falls apart. Because every age, every generation has their world fall apart, and that's what sort of defines them. So as long as there's that shared experience, well, you're just be, explaining generalizations and like <laughs> if it's okay to ever use a generalization ever. It's like it's right. environmental, macro systemic changes that nudged the certain people who shared a certain experiences at a certain time in a certain way. And we make generalizations about them. And these generalizations we call generations. They're not accurate to every person. They are fuzzy. But sometimes just for ease of talking about them, right. we use them. Right, a shared them. experience we use and them. But what hopefully I was that's okay with our listeners. Is, yes, yes. So yes, exactly. Your points are all right. But, but what I was going to say is that the generations that we think of primarily, greatest generation, boomer, X, now it, things are like way more fractured. There's been this balkanization of, I mean, not just just like the world, but like a nicheification. Like think of McLuhan's media world versus our media world. Think of like television, radio, film versus like web three decentralization that we're all excited about. Like, I wonder if there will be shared experiences. We don't have consumer experiences. There's a couple of different devices which do define us in larger groups. But like like Nike must advertise to a million different markets. It's not just like, just do it. It's like a thousand different campaigns. It's interesting that the new Lacoste campaign, they did the ads where it's like a cool Zoomer black guy with like a really old white guy at a racetrack together. (laughs) Have you been into a Lacoste store recently, actually? This is so weird. I actually have. I've been in a few recently. It's like like United Color of Benettons, but the ages are also like all over the place. That's true. But it's kind of great. Yeah. But did, when you went into the store, did you notice that half of it is like totally like Minecraft gamer and then the other half is like for the like 70 year old guy at a country club? It's like dual, it's marketing to both of these mm-hmm. potential consumer groups side by side and one is making the other look cool, I guess. Mm. But I mean, I like the idea of just collapsing it all. Like that in itself seems new or like a unique thing to do. Maybe I should befriend a young black boy. 
No, in the Lacoste, he'd be five. And it'd be you and like a five-year-old yeah, hanging out I'll, at the museum. I was going to wear a Lacoste t-shirt here tonight, but actually, but it's smoked cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> but also maybe I'm interested how you'd answer your own question about have we reached the end of this generational yeah. thinking? Well, look, I think... On the one hand, the whole idea of generations is ultimately a, a very canny consumer marketing form of you know, weaponization no? that, that has worked very, very well. On the other hand, one way in which it is undoubtedly empirically true is in relation to media. Yes. Mm. Right? So, you know, McLuhan writes... Uh, understanding media at the time of what he calls electric media. And so he's writing about television, magazines, books, and advertising. As I said, the internet hadn't arrived yet. Even VHS hadn't arrived yet. (laughs) So, you know, I mean, he has this whole idea of like conceptual probes, and that's essentially what he's doing. But the work that he works on is the media of the time. I mean, he talks about hot media and cold media, right? Distinction between, let's say, radio, television, one requires more participation, one requires less, all of these things. But, you know, for him, I mean, one of the ways in he's, he seemed to be a sort of prophet of futurism is because he applied all his august thinking on literary theory onto television, <laughs> right. no? which was considered ludicrous <sighs> by his contemporaries at the University of Toronto or at the University of Cambridge. It would be the same, I guess, similar to Kenny Goldsmith's nine years ago, right, doing his internet course at whichever university, we Yale, I can't remember where it was. I think there was a sort of ludicrousness no, to that. There was a sort of sense in which, what, really? And I always sort of remind myself that I'm of the generation that I can't remember a world before television. I was born into a world where television was omnipresent. It was also when we would go back to Bangladesh, which is where I was born, but I haven't spent a huge amount of time, but we would go when I was very young. The centrality of television there, it really dominated everything. It still does largely. And this is where I kind of really hate this, like, I think very like Occidental centric notion that, oh, television doesn't matter anymore. Mm, no, like mm-hmm. it's all online. Yeah. Russia, Russia, mm-hmm. 70% at, at the very least of Russian population, most of whom are very old now, right? It's an aging population, yeah. um, most of whom lived under the Soviet era. Their primary source of information is television. And they're not going on signal. They're not going on telegram. Maybe they're going Mm -hmm. on telegram. Who knows? It's Russian. (laughs) Russian. But there's a way in which I do believe that our nervous systems are kind of locked into certain, the medium at which our most vulnerable, impressionable window was formed. And I mean, Douglas has this phrase, you know, I miss my pre-internet brain. I posted, and then, you know, a friend of mine who's 20 years old, she wrote back immediately, I don't have a pre-internet brain. (laughs) I don't know what that even feels like, or I can't even imagine what that feels like, no? So I do, in that sense, I still hold on to the idea of generations, like, uh, but in relation to a certain kind of um, way in which a neurology neural wiring, sentimentality, and a, and a sense of navigation in the world is linked to specific media. Yep. But at the same time, we, we do have a total balkanization of, you know, so you can belong to several generations at once now. And I do think that ultimately comes down to what your relationship is 
two different forms of technology. Mm-hmm. No, I remember when my father, who is now 84, you know, he's of that age where we simply could not get him near a computer. My mom can't get him near a mobile phone. They're alien objects. He just simply won't get there. But years ago, we got him an iPad. Now we can't tear it away from him. You know, he uses it mostly to access news, Bangladeshi news, um, Al Jazeera, whatever, no? But in that very moment, he entered into the global neural network of the internet, which he didn't before. Mm -hmm, And I can see there's a way in which his generational belonging modified at that point. And so perhaps it's overly technologically positivist, but I think generations do matter in relation to like technology and media. Holly Herndon, you know, she says the other thing that defines generations is that every generation will go through a major economic crisis. And there seems to be one pretty much every 10 or 12 years. I mean, just think about what's happened over the last two years. The climate over the last two years, what are the lasting effects of that? Neurologically, psychologically, but also just in terms of employment. No, when the IPCC is telling us we basically have eight years left before mm-hmm. irreversible climate change, and we're seeing secular inflation that are ultimately going to result in this, again, a kind of zombie recession. And at the same time, more and more aggressive automation. No? And so my 20-year-old friend, when I speak to her, it was very, very bracing because she says... Me and my friends, we can't imagine a future beyond 10 years' time. I find this really interesting in relation to their relationship to crypto because I think the whole idea of WJMI, we're going to make it, (sighs) is not that we're going to make it in 20 years' time or 40 years' time. I need to make it by next week. Right, Mm, that's interesting. Because, Uh Because I don't have the luxury of thinking about decades anymore, no? Well, it's like it's the last chance also. It's the idea that sort of the economic divide will become a permanent rupture, especially because of automation and this stuff. Yep. And like crypto is the last exit. Um, exactly. Before that. Yep. Um, yeah. I wanted to ask you, Schumann, about what changed between the age of earthquakes and the extreme self and what's changed since the extreme self? Does it feel like a continuum or do these feel like marked differences in periods? They, they are marked differences. And um, I don't think we could have planned it, but... The Age of Earthquakes came out in 2015. I think of it as a kind of compressed history of the first decade of the second decade of the 21st century. So I think that decades now last roughly five years. Mm. They'll last three years, then they'll last one year, and then et cetera, et cetera. But I think in the 2010s, there was probably two decades. And the first was roughly, you know, maybe financial crisis to 2015. And then the second book, I mean, it was initiated uh, in January 2017. And so we'd gone through, I guess, the collective PTSD of everything that happened in 2016. And being British, that, of course, included Brexit. Uh, And then, of course, everything that happened in the States. And then there was another rupture, no, which was COVID in early 2020. And so this book charts that period really from 2016 to the present moment. But I find it fascinating and not coincidental how, what was the thing that allowed us to psychologically exit Brexit? It was the prospect of World War V, <laughs> no? Five. Five. <laughs> 
Okay, okay, continue. Right. No, the way I count is obviously the, the two world wars, I think of the Cold War as World War Three, mm. and then I think of the War on Terror as World War Four. Mm. And so the War on Terror, for example, is extremely neat. No, it's 9-11. And then the American troops pull out of Afghanistan last September, almost exactly 20 years. Now, I mean, the whole point was to get the hell out of there before the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And so that's a very neatly bookended period in which, you know, COVID nestles as well, no? And then what's going to happen next? We're then thrown back into what I call the end of the end of history. Right, yeah. Um, History two. History two. (laughs) (laughs) It's back. (laughs) Just when you thought. There's your movie idea. (laughs) Maybe that's the title for the apes. (laughs) History two. How do we spell the two? Um, T-O-O. Oh, that's no. a good point. No. <laughs> I was just thinking of two, two but yeah. History 2.0. History 2.0. Yeah, 2. 2. 2. 2. No. Cabaret 2.0. No, we don't yeah. say the point O's anymore. We just say the two. So history two, written all lowercase, oh, so the two, no two. space between. Oh, Maybe that's it's good. H-S-T-R-Y-2. S-T-R-Y. Yeah, S-T-R-Y-2. No vowels. No vowels. And no Oh, yeah, no vowels. I forgot no vowels anymore. As few characters as possible, dot eth. <laughs> History two dot eth. Yeah, that works. Correct. That's yeah. Could this be the first new models or channel produced movie feature film? History two. Julian, are you directing? Please go. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Julian, you've been saying you want to make a summer movie. But history two has just begun. We're gonna live it. <laughs> hey, history two could have a good trailer, actually. Yeah. Let's just maybe we just make all the trailer. The trailer. Yeah. yeah, that's all you need. <laughs> Let's just make the trailer. Exactly. <laughs> Shall I ask my questions? My girlfriend texted me some questions for Carly. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, have you ever shoplifted? Knowingly or unknowingly? Uh, knowingly. Yeah, you'll be disappointed. I don't think I have. I have too much of a guilty conscience. God can see through. Did you hear this? Apparently in, I learned this night at a gallery dinner, apparently in certain parts of Germany, they're quite Catholic and you're not supposed to eat meat during Lent, but they also really like meat in these areas. So there's like a little pastry that goes around the meat, kind of like a beef wellington or something, like this kind of a thing. And the thing is that if you cook your meat inside of the pastry, well, God can't see it. So then it's okay. (laughs) That was like such a, that's their hack for eating meat. Any any sin inside of a pastry? Inside of a pastry, apparently so. Apparently so. Yeah, God has no, uh, as soon as you have a pie... A pasty, a pastry, as soon as you've got a taco going on. Yeah. God is. Yeah. God's just like, what are they eating? I can't tell. Like, I don't know. <laughs> exactly. Like, as soon as you've got a sandwich. Exactly. exactly. Pastry, like, oh, pastry is to God what lead is to Superman. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I'm surprised Apparently. Bergheim isn't just a giant pastry. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Next question. Next question, yeah. Does uh, does Carly like metaphors? Does Carly like poetry? Oh, I'm very selective about poetry. A lot of it I find unbearable, mm-hmm. but there is some Gen X poetry like David Berman that I still like, but I really, yeah, there is wait, some... Wait, David Berman, like Silver, Silver, Silver Jews, Jews, David Berman? Oh. Yeah, yeah. Actual air. 
is so good. Really great. And you could probably recite it. But anyway. Carly, what two fashion houses describe your personality? Ooh, that's great. Maybe Um, maybe, maybe Julian can answer this one. Maybe you can both answer. That's a great question. I mean, it would probably be something really practical and probably like dusty and preppy from like the states like some old like the polo shirts you have to wear to school and if you have a uniform and and then something that i like like now yeah you're like like patagonia autolinger yeah like 90s patagonia and thank you to your girlfriend for those questions (laughs) (laughs) there's like a cult of dan and there's a cult of julian there's a cult of carly there is not i'm so and i I just think i I nailed the coffin shut on that with my responses i don't shop with (laughs) i can't recite any poetry that's like a kind of Tourette's where you just give the worst possible <laughs> answers to make sure that you can just like... Um, but we should wrap up, right? We should wrap but up. Is there any new neologisms that aren't exclusive that you can uh, share? <laughs> like upcoming. <laughs> upcoming neologisms? Yeah. I did have a... From the next album. From the next album. <laughs> Non-fungible trauma. Oh, that's good. Yeah. That's what I'm giving you. Not, I hope that's in the OED or Collins or whatever. Uh, that's going to be fucking word of the year. It should be NFT. No kidding. When does the book drop? The book drops in the future. <laughs> what's, the uh, what, what's everyone's prediction? Dan, you as well. What's everyone's prediction for word of the year 2022? Mm. I can go first. I think it'll be vessels. 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 Right. Vessels. Vessel. That's like, when you say in that. In what context? Yeah. Are you thinking of just like containers of all sorts, no, or just, do you just, have like just, a particular like thing that's going on there with that? Just being a vessel. People mm-hmm. into being, being a vessel. Doesn't it have being to be a, a new? Doesn't have to be a new word though. Oh. Because the word of the year would just be like oh. it'd be like woman. If it, if it, oh, <laughs> it's gonna be a new. <laughs> word. It has to be a new word. Uh, I'm into, I'm into Dean's okay, vessels. So, okay, so uh, uh, Oxford English Dictionary, word of the year, 2022, drainer. drainer. Dean, are you a drainer? Yeah. Adult, adult drainer. <laughs> adult, adult drainer. drainer. <laughs> Geriatric drainer. <laughs> it's so real. Yeah, I'm an, I'm an adult drainer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's oh, good. Schumann, the, NFT yeah. is NFT? And a non-fungible trauma. Non-fungible. Yeah, it's just going to be NFT again, but it's going to mean non-fungible trauma. And Dean will claim that it's not a real word. <laughs> Next time we're here. Expanded NFT, ENFT, Enfly. Enfly. <laughs> Expanded X, XFT. XFT. Yeah. Dan, word of the year? Um, it's, you know, it feels early in the year. I'm going <laughs> to That's my cop out. I don't think we've seen the word of the year yet. Fair enough. Speculative word of the year. Julian? Oh, but it's just, I'm bringing it full circle. It's mid. <laughs> mid. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Mid. Mid. That, yeah. That, that, that mid. Will win. That works. That's also a very mid answer. <laughs> I will also say mid, uh, which is the middest answer. If you don't say mid too, then you're ruining the bit, is all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> well, relatedly, Zentrism. Oh. This is Julian's word of yesterday. What, what is That's zentrism? Nice. It's just, you get it after a sort of ex, like culture war exhaustion, the flywheel towards the poles. It's not really centrism. It's just, you're kind of have a Zen like detachment from the sort of 
polar culture war. Grillstivism. It's more like you're in the zenter. Zentrism is like you but still I don't care. think it should be zentrism. I think it Zentrist. just needs to be the zenter. The, the zentrist. That transcends the binary. Right, because right, zentrism is too much like centrism. Yeah, it's it not sounds really like that. it's a variation on centrism. No, it's like you're in matrix mode. Like you see how the sides push against each other and then like fuel each other's flywheels and how somewhere between these push and pulls is where actually the things happen. And it's trying to look at uh, online politics in God mode. I, I, I often worry I'm a like liberal centrist at heart, but now I realize the- I'm, a, I'm a centrist. <laughs> in the meantime, Dean Schumann, anything you all have coming up that people might want to hear about? Uh, I have the exhibition opening in New York, Namad Contemporary on June the 22nd. So I'm, I'm editing a poetry scene for Mulberry, for British handbag brand Mulberry, so that'll be out June the 1st. Oh, chic. Cabaret tomorrow. Very yeah. good. Um, and Schumann? I guess the next thing will be our inaugural drop of Zine. Spelled Z. Z-I-E-N, which means to see in Dutch. And um, we'll do seasonal drops. Three artists over three or four months each at a time. And the first drop will be in middle of June, roughly. Cool. And uh, and then throughout the rest of summer. And I'm sort of super excited about that Z-I-E-N. How do people join the WhatsApp? Um, yeah, so the interface is a smart bot that addresses you on WhatsApp. We sort of felt that one of the ways in which maybe a larger audience wasn't getting pilled was because they find a lot of the terminology, but also a lot of the technology kind of intimidating, Mm. you know, and the idea of like, you know, making that leap into Discord is not a small thing for an average person. But there are 2 billion people on WhatsApp. Mm -hmm. And so there's a kind of reasonably friendly way for all ends of the spectrum to kind of begin to engage with this. There will be a DAO and the DAO will be called New Aura and there will be a Discord, but you know, you've got to work your way up to those things, I think. So yeah, all will be revealed in the next few weeks. Cool. I, I, I remember something else I've been doing actually. I'm helping on a project by uh, Charlotte Day Reese. I'm not actually very involved, but her project's very good. Like, uh, we're building like a kind of AI goddess girlfriend type thing like a kind of like a her yeah exactly like a her uh-huh. yep but with a visual component a very oh, really? beautiful and her name is diana we're bringing the kind of roman goddess ah. diana back to earth we've invented a new type of sex which we call sex three much, <laughs> much, much like uh, history much two like history, history, two. history two and sex three wow. we, have, we have sex three and uh, history two sex three diana recently joined twitter as like a ex diana land x so if you're interested in sex three you can follow <laughs> Um, or history too. If you're interested in history too, you can follow. Um, Maybe the, the generations and, like, need uh, numbers. Yeah, I was just like, thinking that. Like, you know, Gen, Gen 1. Gen 1. Gen 1. The Gen next one. generation for that sure. Works. Yeah. Spelled yeah. W-O-N. And to all our friends in Generation 1, like, God <laughs> yeah. bless you. God bless you. May the light just... You have to be light when you can. <laughs> all right. Dan, anything else from you? I think I think that's that's that covers it all. <laughs> we covered covered everything. Generation one, generation two, sex three, yeah. and World, World War five, World War five, and four. Yeah. Wait, is this going to be the recession two? Also, what the great recession two. Recession four. Recession four. Yeah. All right. Nice See you later, chatting, guys. Bye, Dan. Bye, Dan. Bye, Dan. Bye. 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 Bye.
thank you for tuning in to this After Dark episode of the New Models Podcast. And thank you to Dean Kissick and Schumann Bissar for joining us on the show. If you don't already have a copy of The Extreme Self or The End of Earthquakes, Schumann's books with Douglas Copeland and Hans Ulrich Obrist, we highly recommend you check them out. Along with, of course, Dean Kissick's regular column for Spike Art Magazine, The Downward Spiral. In Berlin, summer has arrived and the parks are again full of micro-raves populated by the whole spectrum of favorite 20th century subcultural tribes. We hear that in New York, the New Models and DNR crews have been holding it down with meetups of various kinds. Shout out to Woodbine NYC and Ridgewood Queens for hosting our Codex Cruise de-virtualizer event there on Friday. Also, a little bit of housekeeping. If you are a non-Discord, podcast-listening-only member of New Models, you now have the option of subscribing to us via Substack for $5 USD a month. We'll also be experimenting in the coming weeks with our aggregator and other kinds of content. In the meantime, let us know what you like, what you don't like, and what you're thinking about in general. Our email address is desk at newmodels.io. That's all for now. Make sure to comment, like, subscribe, leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app, and we will see you next episode. This has been a New Models production with mixing by low internet. New Models is available on Patreon, Substack, and channel.xyz. Visit newmodels.io for more info.